Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me at joshuaritter.com. We are recording this on Friday, December 9th, 2022. In this week's episode, we have breaking news in the prisoner exchange that released WNBA star Brittany Griner after months of detention in a Russian prison, plus the sentencing of Michael Avenatti after he pled guilty to defrauding clients of millions of dollars. We'll also break down the conviction of the Trump Organization in a tax fraud scandal that could have far-reaching implications on their future business dealings. And finally... Two cases involving former law enforcement officers as the prosecution rests in the murder trial for the death of a woman who was allegedly babysitting at the time of the shooting, as well as the conviction of a former Border Patrol agent turned serial killer. Today we are joined by Christopher Melcher, a divorce attorney and legal analyst with vast experience in complex litigation. Chris, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me, Josh. I appreciate um, being invited back and looking through, uh, going through all these cases with you. Absolutely. Um, for the listeners who had not heard the first time you were on this episode, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and your current practice? Sure. So I've been a lawyer 28 years in California. I started in criminal defense and then switched over to family law doing uh, divorce work and the trial and appellate level. And I'm also a legal commentator, so this is just a kind of passion of mine is to go and follow these stories and explain them in easily understood terms so people that aren't able to go to court and watch the testimony or read the docket uh, can understand what's going on in the case and, and help participate in our system of justice. Fantastic. Uh, well, we have a lot to cover today, um, lots of news, uh, so let's just jump right into some of this. First of all, we have uh, the news out of uh, both Moscow and Washington that WNBA star Brittany Griner is returning home after the negotiation of a prisoner swap between the U.S. State Department and Russia. Griner had been detained in Moscow since February of 2022 after vape cartridges containing cannabis were found in her luggage. Greiner pled guilty to the charges and was sentenced to nine years. To secure Greiner's release, the U.S. had agreed to release and return a Russian arms dealer, Victor Bout, nicknamed the Merchant of Death, who is serving a 25-year federal prison sentence for conspiring to kill American citizens. Previously, negotiations to free Greiner stalled earlier this year when the Freedom of a former U.S. Marine, Paul Whelan, was sought in conjunction with her release. Whelan, who has been convicted on espionage charges in Russia, has been in Russia since 2018. The former Marine reportedly expressed gratitude for Greiner's release, but was critical of the lack of progress in securing his own freedom. Uh, uh, Chris, a lot has been made over the... Um, Whatever, if you want to call it the equity of this exchange, what is your reaction? You know, we've got, and what people are talking about is you've got a WNBA star in exchange for a person being described as the merchant of death. What, what do you, what do you make of this here? Well, this is difficult, I think, for a lot of us to understand in in places in the U.S. where, uh, you know, vape cartridges are legal. I mean, you can just buy them retail. And so to think that um, something that is legal in many places here could land uh, someone in nine years in prison in Russia 
is very difficult to understand. I think, though, uh, certainly every country has, you know, their own laws and, and ways of penalizing things. I don't know what the law in Russia is on that and if that's a normal sentence. I think certainly if, if anyone traveling, uh, you know, to a place like Russia would, you know, be uh, it's definitely, you know, forewarned to be very careful about complying with their laws. Now, in terms of your question on the equitableness of the exchange, I think, you know, I mean, this is this is really a hostage taking situation here that it looks like to me where Russia, uh, you know, could have said, let her off with a warning and saying, hey, you know, you can't do this here. Please don't come back or don't do this again. Fine. Um, but to imprison her, you know, for a very long sentence, it was clear that they were doing so uh, as as a bargaining chip. And that is a you know violation, I think, of her fundamental human rights. And the problem with the exchange, I mean, it's a great outcome for her and her family, of course. But does this now incentivize, you know, further essentially hostage taking of U.S. citizens abroad uh, as leverage for that government uh, to get uh, a prisoner back of their own uh, that we are you know presumably holding legally? So I mean, it's been going on for a long time, but that's. That's the the takeaway that I have. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, there was reporting at the time when negotiations had first begun and she was first arrested that, you know, mistakes were, I don't know if you want to call it mistakes were being made, but that the, 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 the State Department was um, uh, wringing their hands over all of the kind of um, celebrity attention that was given to her case. Uh, because you've got you know you know figures like LeBron James talking about her release, the Russians are are noticing that, and they they may not have realized uh, the person that they had in custody. And had she been somebody that nobody cared about, perhaps you're right. Perhaps she would have gotten some sort of warning and re- released. But when they realized, look at all the attention this is getting from the U.S. media, we're gonna we're gonna hold on to this person because this is a huge bargaining chip for us. Um, that changed the dynamic, and now they've got the release of this, you know, this this person who's a, a you know was convicted for allegedly trying to take American lives. And I agree with you. Do you think that you know the Russians are obviously not honest brokers here? Do you think that they're going to use this kind of tactic in the future of realizing that hey, the the U.S. will be willing to negotiate in a, in a unfair manner as long as it's somebody that media-wise, gives them a lot of trouble. Yeah, and this has been going on for, for yeah. years. There, We have Paul Whelan, who's a former Marine, being held uh, by the Russians. And the Biden administration tried to negotiate his release along with this, and it was presented as no, it's a one-for-one, and Paul Whelan's not part of that deal. So they're going to have to find somebody else to trade for Paul. Uh, there was another rush, uh, another American, and I forget the gentleman's name, but um, that was recently released in another exchange. So this is something that happens. And I think that uh, obviously now with the war in Ukraine, I doubt that we're going to see many Americans travel to Russia. But um, the, the thing is, is that you could be out of the country, maybe in another place that's aligned with Russia and maybe getting taken there and transferred to Russia or being held in that other country. And, you know, Venezuela or something like that. And all of a sudden you're you're now caught up into this thing. So it, it's definitely, uh, you know, it's scary. 
Um, yeah. But to be used as a bargaining chip, and I got to imagine how traumatized uh, she is after that experience. And you know, I don't, I don't know how. I mean, fortunately, she came back. You know, it seems like safely, but it's got to be really traumatizing what she went yep. through. Absolutely. Well, we are obviously happy for her and her family and her loved ones. But I agree with you. It's scary about the prospects moving forward. Um, and how Russia deals uh, with the U.S. in these uh, negotiated exchanges. Let's move on to uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office out of California here. Michael Avenatti, the disgraced lawyer who once represented Stormy Daniels, has been sentenced to 14 years in prison in order to pay over $10 million in restitution to former clients in the IRS. Avenatti pled guilty to four counts of wire fraud and one count related to obstruction of the IRS in June of this year. Avenatti defrauded his clients of millions of dollars, including over $4 million for a client with severe disabilities. Avenatti allegedly negotiated settlements on behalf of his clients, then misrepresented the terms of the settlements to his clients. Avenatti would then deposit the funds into an attorney trust account he controlled where he would further embezzle and misappropriate the funds, according to the indictment. The attorney's 14-year sentence will not begin until Avenatti has completed a five-year prison term. He's already currently serving in New York for two separate convictions. Uh, Chris, jump right in. And Avenatti uh, has had an incredible fall uh, from, from prestige or grace or popularity, whatever you want to call it. At one point, he was rumored to possibly be a presidential candidate. What happened here? How did this guy fall to where he's at today? You know, I guess it got to come down to ego. And these these stories like this, uh, Avenatti and Girardi, really, really yeah. upset me. And, you know, as fellow lawyers, you know, we, we have spent our career, you know, uh, learning the law and getting licensed and building our reputations. And it's a it's a tradition of service to our clients and to see a fellow lawyer rip off clients and, and, and especially ones that are in need. I mean, these are people, you know, like in Girardi's case and here where you're saying in Avenatti, these are people who were injured. Uh, the money was obtained um, for their benefit. And then the lawyer is ripping them off and then lying about it and hiding the fact that he ripped them off. There, there isn't a sentence long enough. And I'm glad that action's been taken because a lot of these kind of high-flying lawyers have escaped uh, accountability um, because of their prestige. And um, they've just, you know, the, the bar has not had a good record of going after them. Now, with, with Avenatti, it's it just like, why? You know, your question is like, why would he do this? I mean, the guy was very well known, very successful, and I'm sure made plenty of money and he could have done so honestly. Why did he need to steal? And I think it's just um, the sickness that, you know, of greed and narcissism probably where he just has to be the center of attention. It's not about the client anymore. It's about him. And he probably got himself into this lifestyle that he convinced that he was entitled to and he stole to support it. And it's absolutely disgusting. And I'm glad that they did a consecutive sentence with a New York one and not concurrent. So it's five then you start the 14 years. Yeah, yeah, long time to be in prison and think about what he did. You referenced Girardi. We're talking about Tom Girardi here in Los Angeles was a very pr uh, prominent uh, personal injury attorney. If you if you know more about his case, please expand on that for us. But basically, it's it, the allegations are the same sort of thing. And and so listeners understand what we're talking about is if you represent someone and they get a large verdict or they get a large settlement. All of that money, 
um, which would include the attorney's fees and the, the fees that are going to go to the client would be deposited in the attorney's trust account. And instead of, and we're not talking about a small share that they're going to take, they're going to take somewhere around 40% of that for attorney's fees. Um, and instead of just taking their share and giving the rest to the client who's got the injuries and life care and everything else they have to deal with, they took all of it and just used it as their personal piggy bank. Um, and my question is, one, if you know more about Girardi and his his dealings and how that's going to affect uh, people practicing here in California, but just how do these people think they're going to get away with this? Well, so Girardi was, you know, when I came up in, you know, 1994, he he did a program was a Superior Court walkthrough and the Superior Court uh, had judges and, and well-known lawyers give presentations. And Girardi was one of the presenters. So as me as a baby lawyer here, this guy's talking about doing these huge personal injury, you know, mass tort things. He was the, the lawyer that was featured in Aaron Brockovich, the movie. And you know, with this contamination in an area in California. So this guy had had all the accolades. He had all the success that you could want as a lawyer. And uh, he had made, I'm, I'm sure, at least a hundred million dollars in attorney's fees, honestly. But it wasn't enough. Incredible. And what happened was, is that he was getting these settlement, um, very large settlement. Uh, I mean, we're talking many, many, many millions of dollars. And he would hold it. And then uh, when the client would say, well, hey, we settled the case, I need the money, he would say, well, there was a delay uh, where it's some kind of dispute with the vendor or the insurance company didn't pay all the money or lie about the terms and saying like, hey, it's going to be paid as installments, so here's your little check. When it wasn't, it was supposed to be in a lump sum. And others were complaining. Clients were complaining. Co-counsel were complaining. And the State Bar of California did nothing. And now that we find out later on is that he had very close and inappropriate relationships with state bar leadership. He had one with the uh, FBI uh, official here in Los Angeles um, and other leaders who, you know, he was very generous with and uh, they protected him. And so now all that's come out and it's a huge black eye. Of course, all these these plaintiffs that he represented are the real victims. Now, California has changed its law on trust accounts. So when a lawyer obtains a settlement like that, they have to report it uh, quickly and then they have to distribute it within 40 days. And it's a presumed violation, ethical violation, if they don't distribute the money within 40 days. Now, crooks will be crooks. People will lie and create false records and stuff like that. Um, but at the least they're trying to put attention on it. But again, very, very, uh, we already have a bad name as lawyers, you know, and, and here <laughs> these, these people are not helping us. No. Um, and the, the repercussions from this are, are still being felt because there's being changes in the uh, state bar here in California and how they handle this and the transparency of a, a different um, uh, uh, complaints and, and, and disciplinary proceedings. So w we will continue to watch this and as both two practicing attorneys in California continue to kind of experience the changes it has for us in our practice. Let's move now to Manhattan, uh, New York, uh, where uh, an, another notorious figure is making the news again. Two Trump Organization subsidiaries have been convicted on 17 counts, including tax fraud, falsifying business records, and conspiracy. 
The Trump Corporation was convicted of nine counts, while the Trump Payroll Corporation was convicted of the other seven counts. Prosecutors in the case alleged that Trump Organization executives reduced their reported salaries in order to avoid paying required taxes on compensation that included free apartments, luxury vehicles, and even private school tuition for family members. Executive Alan Weisselberg testified that while his actions were motivated by personal greed, he admitted that the tax evasion also benefited uh, the company. Donald Trump, who recently announced his 2024 presidential bid, is not a defendant in the case. However, prosecutors allege that Trump, quote, knew exactly what was going on in their closing arguments. Sentencing is set for mid-January with a possible penalty of 100 or pardon me, 1.61 million in fines. Um, Chris, kind of explain to us what, what this is about. It's, it's, it's tax evasion, right? What's the theory of the prosecution here? Sure. So this goes to fringe benefits or perquisites of employees. So what happened was, is that these employees, and we're talking high-level executives of the Trump organization, uh, were entitled to a salary. And normally that would you know, be paid to them and they'd get a W-2 and they'd have to pay taxes on it, which of course are very expensive to pay taxes when you make that much money. So the employees, uh, certain of these employees had an interest in reducing their taxable income. And by having the Trump organization uh, through payroll uh, pay for certain personal expenses of the employees and treating those as business expenses of the company, not as payroll. So, for example, just and I'm just making this up, say somebody was supposed to make one point five million dollars in salary that year. They would say, hey, we'll pay you a million through payroll and that's all you'll pay taxes on. The other half a million dollars, we will basically backdoor to you. We'll give you this apartment or we'll give you the use of these vehicles or trips or whatever it is. And so they're getting the same amount of money, but they're not paying the taxes on that extra half a million dollars. Now, that certainly benefited the executives and, um, and also benefited the, the company or the organization in two ways. One is, is that if you're paying somebody $1.5 million you know, on the books above board, um, they're going to pay the taxes on that money. And if you can give them half a million dollars in non-taxable income, well, that's just like making $2 million. So basically, they, they got leverage. The organization got more bang for their buck. And uh, the other way the organization benefited is they didn't pay, have to pay payroll taxes on these business, these so-called business expenses because they were not classifying that on the books as wages. So the half a million dollars in use of vehicles or apartments and travel and stuff like that were just put on the books of the company as operating expenses, not as as wages, and therefore they didn't have to pay what's called these payroll tax and other fringe benefits and stuff that you have to do. So the company benefited, the employees benefited, the government found out about this and charged the Trump organization, uh, the two, uh, Corp, Trump Corp and Trump Payroll Corp, not Trump personally. So Trump has been mentioned as having known about and maybe even approved some of these schemes, but was not a defendant in that action. Yeah, very interesting. And I was going to put you on the spot, but I'm not. I decided. But <laughs> I will say that with this conviction, a pending $250 million civil lawsuit for financial fraud, the raid on Mar-a-Lago 
all of this uh, is certainly going to play a role. Uh, you know, the landscape of his coming um, 2024 presidential bid. So we'll continue to watch this. Now let's just turn to two cases involving uh, uh, former law enforcement officers. First out of Fort Worth, Texas, the murder trial of Aaron Dean will take a four-day break after the prosecution promptly rested their case after presenting just three days of testimony. Dean is a former Fort Worth police officer who's been charged in the fatal shooting of Tatiana Jefferson in 2019. Dean and another officer responded to a non-emergency call regarding a door left open at a residence when they encountered Jefferson. Allegedly, neither officer announced their presence, and body cam footage appears to show the officer shining a flashlight into a dark room before Dean yelled, put your hands up before firing a single shot into the room, which killed Jefferson. Jefferson was in possession of a firearm, however. Dean's fellow officers testified that she could not see the weapon, and Dean never announced the gun prior to discharging the shot that killed Jefferson. Um, this is one of those cases that's it's, it's, it's not as straightforward as it may seem. Uh, when, when you hear the facts and you understand they didn't announce their presence, he never spoke about a gun. He's firing inside of somewhere where he can't see all that clearly. Um, but but talk to us about how difficult these are to prosecute because you're dealing with a very fluid situation. You're making split-second decisions. What do you make of all of this, Chris? Sure. So in in I've had a law enforcement background, so I, I looked at the body cam footage. And, you know, it's so this call comes out at 2.30 in the morning. You know, and and so there's two units dispatched. Uh, there's this male officer who's the one defendant now in this criminal case, and then a female officer who showed up. And so they do not announce themselves. And so um, they're they're there. They're walking very quietly, and the yards. I, 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 yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you. But you, you please remember your train of thought here. But talk to us about that that bit about not announcing themselves and why that's important. Yeah, that that to me, you know, the now what the officer articulated and he said, I didn't I didn't announce myself because this looked like a a burglary had happened or maybe was happening. And, you know, so we know like police will do a a silent approach. Typically, if they think it's a burglary in progress, they're going to, you know, turn the lights off and they're going to come in kind of quietly because they want to kind of understand like what they're getting into. Now, uh, so he's saying, like, look, based on the condition of the property, when he looked inside, um, things were thrown around and it looked like maybe there was a burglary. Maybe it was ransacked. OK, fine. Um, but then he was saying, I, I didn't want to announce myself because I didn't I, I wanted I wanted to catch them. Well, to me, the only reason why you wouldn't announce yourself is for your own officer's safety, um, because, you, you, you know, you only have two units there. It's two thirty in the morning. It's dark. And so maybe you want other units to come up before the bad guy or bad guys know that you're there. So that would have been the reason not to announce yourself. His his saying like, well, I wanted to catch them. So right there, I I really don't like that um, because it's dangerous. There is a call here of an open door and potentially a prowler there. And you might reasonably expect the homeowner to arm herself like she did. And this is this is a a lady, you know, uh, babysitting her relative. 
Uh, there's no there's no scandal going on here or no criminal activity going on here. And you would reasonably expect as an officer that she's going to potentially arm herself and be scared if somebody's walking around her yard looking in the window at 2.30 in the morning. So he has put himself into a position where where deadly force could be used against him um, and also now where there could be a misunderstanding about who he is. She can't see who he is from inside the room when he is in the exterior and there's a window there and he sees the uh, gun, which she has, and it's her home and she has a right to have the gun there. Uh, and then he fires through the window. So it's a bad shooting. Um, you know, they, the prosecution maybe didn't have to put on a lot of evidence. It kind of makes sense. They went after the, you know, second degree murder, which, uh, you know, would be this kind of reckless state of mind concept that, you know, I, I, I kind of think it's more of a manslaughter kind of thing. It's it's um, so I, I don't know, you know, what the jury's going to come back on um, because it just it seems like it's out of policy. It seems like it's bad policing. Uh, did he have, you know, like some I, I want to kill her? No, I don't think he wanted to do that to her, but he it was very bad policing. Yeah. You you make um, some points that I wanted to go back to in an excellent way of explaining all of that. Thank you. But this really comes down to because like you pointed out, in a murder case, we need to have some sort of mens rea, right? Some sort of mental state. Here, there's zero evidence. I don't think anybody's ever going to argue that he intended to take somebody's life when he went out there that day. It's obvious that he's responding to a call and in some part following protocol and other parts deviating from it. Um, now, what they need to prove, the prosecution I mean, is what you pointed out. Is there is his deviation from protocol, is his, is his reaction to this scene so far outside of the bounds of reasonableness that it is... Um, not only negligent, but grossly negligent or uh, to, to showing uh, an indifference to safety and life to the extent that it rises to the level we would need for the requisite um, mental state for second degree murder. You talk about manslaughter, which would mean kind of a, a lesser degree of that mental state. Can you flesh that out for us a little bit? Sure. So, you know, we could look at um, the Rust shooting with Alec Baldwin involved, you know, yeah. where you have lawful activity m making a movie with a with what's supposed to be a prop gun um, resulting in death. And so when that happens, um, you can be charged with manslaughter if you're engaging in a lawful activity uh, that's likely to in involve death if you're not reasonably careful or use due caution or circumspection, they would say. Um, so here, uh, the officer is engaging in lawful activity and responding to a call for service for an open door, potential prowler at this residence. He's entitled to have a gun. He's entitled to have it out. He's entitled to defend himself, entitled to look around. Um, but uh, we know uh, that that kind of situation can result in deadly force. He has a gun out and or somebody could shoot at him and he might have to shoot back. So he has to use due caution or circumspection when he's engaging in that. And the failure to do that uh, would be manslaughter, um, which is a lesser degree um, crime than second degree murder, where, like you say, he's acting with a reckless indifference for life. And it's almost like I don't care attitude while he's pointing his gun. And I think this was this was sloppiness on his part, uh, and which would more fit manslaughter in my mind than a second degree murder charge.
Yeah, I agree with you. One last point on this. Um, in a lot of these cases, uh, the, the, the crucial witnesses are the partner officers because a lot of this deals with, or almost all of it deals with, the, the perceived um, situation by the officer, right? Is he behaving reasonable given the circumstances of what he perceived and understood? Um, it's not about, you know, the fact that she wasn't a a burglar or the fact that she was just babysitting someone or the fact that she had a, a right to have a gun. But what it did he perceived and would a re reasonable person in his shoes have perceived it the same way that he did and reacted the same way? Well, you have a partner officer who was on scene at the same time who testified, and I think it was very impactful testimony, uh, to talk about, hey, when we arrived he didn't announce that we were officers. He didn't talk about a gun. All I heard him say was hands up and then a, and then a shot went off. Do you think that is what really carries the day here, at least for the prosecution, the idea that we have someone who we can almost place in his shoes to talk about how, yes, these are difficult situations. You are making split second decisions, but the decisions he made were wrong enough to be criminal. Yeah, Josh, I think that testimony of the female officer who was there on scene uh, was very impactful and it could cut both ways. Uh, yes, she, she was there. She featured on the body cam footage. Uh, neither of them announce each other. They're both, you know, basically checking out what's going on. And she says, I don't have a view of that window. I didn't see any gun. All I hear is what you just said. Um, but after the fact, when the shooting happened, she went into the house and she saw the young child was there and she became tearful. She was it was it was you know, I mean, she asked for a break during her testimony because she was relating something that was very impactful. And I think that that showed, you know, hey, I mean, these are these are caring people or at least that officer, that female officer is like this is a real person here trying to help her community. She 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 was you know devastated by what she saw, and so that kind of humanized the department. It humanizes maybe her partner, who she's essentially testifying against, and so you know whether there'll be some carryover effect to that to saying like maybe this the shooting officer is not such a bad guy after all. He's just a bad policeman. Um, I don't know. You know I don't know how that plays out. Um, you know, the other thing is, is that there was a what they call a professional interviewer, you know, somebody hired by the police to come in there and talk to this child right at the night of the incident and basically get him to admit or I don't know if I should say get to. But he, you know, to interview him and it's like, did you see your aunt, you know, hold the gun, point the gun out the window? Yes, I did. And, you know, that's videotape. And, you know, I, I don't know, like. I don't know. It's, I didn't feel right about it. Um, you know, I, I understand you got to get the evidence. You got to do the interview. But this is a very young child who's been through a very traumatic incident. Sure, you have a professional interviewer, but I don't know, man, it just rubbed me the wrong way. And I think if I were on the jury, I just wouldn't really be happy that the department, um, you know, in an incident like that where he just saw his re relative killed, um, having, you know, a professional interviewer, um, get favorable evidence uh, for the police no. officer it just rubbed me the wrong way yeah i agree and it and to some extent the department is kind of on trial here as well is at least in the jurors minds because they're wanting they're going to want to know 
Was he trained properly? Is this just kind of a, a, a you know, not a fault so much that he can, carries completely on his back, but does the department have some responsibility here too? I, I agree with you about that. The the partner officer, um, I, I think, uh, carried a lot of um, weight for the prosecution, probably why they rested so early. But I think there was some stuff that cut both ways. And one of the things I noticed was, when she was talking about their their um, training, and that was important for them to talk about how extensive their training was, um, she talked about how much they deal with uh, life saving um, care, and that they have to that they're, they it, it. Her testimony almost made it sound like they're going into battle, and I thought if I'm the defense, I'm going to really highlight that for people to understand just how dangerous these situations are in the mindset of the responding officer perhaps in actuality the the situation wasn't all that dangerous but in the mindset of the responding officer any situation could turn deadly so it's a tragedy um any way you look at it but we will continue to follow this case Moving to our final case out of San Antonio, Texas, after only five hours of deliberation, a San Antonio jury has convicted former Border Patrol agent Juan David Ortiz of capital murder. Ortiz was then automatically sentenced to life in prison without parole. Ortiz allegedly confessed to the 2018 murders of four sex workers in an interview with investigators, telling authorities that he was, quote, trying to clean up the streets. The prosecution also presented a fifth sex worker who allegedly escaped an attack from Ortiz, alerting authorities who eventually arrested Ortiz. While this was a capital murder case, the death penalty was removed after families of the victims voted unanimously for prosecutors to seek life without parole. Uh, first question on this, Chris, are you, are you surprised by how quickly the jury was able to render a verdict in this case? You know, not not really. I mean, when you got a confession, um, you know, unless you're able to, you know, show it's a false confession, you know, it doesn't doesn't uh, makes it very easy for a jury to convict. And um, so, uh, you know, and I think it's very difficult for the defense team to know, you know, when you when your client, uh, the defendant is saying that that's a false conviction confession. Do you put the, the client on the stand? Uh, or do you maintain, you know, your right to remain silent and and just try and poke holes in the confession through other means? Very, very difficult to do that uh, without putting the client on the stand. And and so, but if you know, the the person takes the stand and testifies as you know to like, here's what I said, here's what I didn't say, or he I was uh, influenced somehow or coerced into making this statement that that it wasn't true. You know, you really got to have uh, you got to deliver the goods and that person has to be credible. Otherwise, they're just sinking their ship. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I remember my time as a prosecutor that you could have, uh, you know, forensic evidence in the form of uh, fingerprints. You could have, you know, grainy videotape. You could have an eyewitness who ID'd the defendant. But if you have the defendant's own words, whether that be through an admission and an interrogation or speaking about the crime during a jailhouse call that you have captured, that is really the linchpin in a case because jurors, there's something about the, that psychology that they love to hang their hat on the person on the on trial admitting that their own involvement. And in a case like this, I think you, you highlighted it perfectly. If your defense is, well, 
that was a false confession, that's a really difficult argument to make. Now, we know that is true. That is a phenomenon that does take place. But in a case like this, where you had confessions to four separate murders and he's giving uh, you know, details that only the murderer might understand, it's hard to say that that was forced uh, out of them. Um, I, I agree with you. Um, w- one other thing that was interesting on this, I, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts because I've never experienced this. Maybe you have something similar, but um, a juror reportedly uh, fainted uh, in this case, after autopsy pictures of one of the victims were shown in court, it, 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 it's the question is kind of outside of talking about this case in particular, but just generally, a lot of times in these criminal cases, some very graphic images are shown in court, and I wonder how much are how much could be unduly influencing the jurors, especially if they're having these types of reactions. What are your thoughts on that? You know, this is this is hard. I think when, you know, you're you're a first responder, you know, whether it's police or or fire or emergency room physician, um, you're a judge, you're a prosecutor, your defense attorney, you you become hardened to to this because you've seen so much of it. And certainly there's there's images that, you know, you never get out of your head. Um, But, you know, you you become, you know, unemotional about it over time because you just have to see it so much. But here we're calling these jurors in, you know, off the street, basically, and they don't have those experiences. They haven't seen stuff like that. And honestly, nobody should be seeing stuff like that. It's terrible. And so they will try and cover that in voir dire or jury selection and certainly saying like, hey, we have some very graphic images. This is what, you know, generally what you may be seeing during this trial. Do you have a problem with that? And they're going to have to say yes to probably get on that jury. But there's a big difference between what I just said and actually seeing the image. And um, so I think the prosecution and really the judge has to be careful of striking that balance between how much of this image really do we need to prove this case? Um, Why do we need to necessarily see in graphic detail what happened to these women? Um, Could it be portrayed in a different way? And sometimes we'll see, like with an autopsy report, and we can see where slash marks are made on an outline of a body. Um, you know, so there are ways of describing the injuries that occurred and where they occurred without necessarily having to show every image. So I do question, and obviously they cro- they went too far with that particular juror. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a delicate balance because certainly what you don't want to do is get into the realm of the the evidence being presented being far more prejudicial than it is probative. And now people are making or coming to conclusions based purely on emotion rather than what it actually proves. Um, Chris, thank you so much for coming on this week. Where can people find out more about you? Sure. So if you go to Twitter uh, while it's still here, uh, CA (laughs) underscore divorce uh, is my handle. So I haven't been tweeting much lately, but that's that's my social media thing for for an older guy that I do. And um, and if you want to know more information, you can just Google Christopher Melcher, M-E-L-C-H-E-R, and uh, look forward to connecting up with you on Twitter if you want to do that. Fantastic. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ or at joshuaritter.com. Come check it out. And you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you have questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. Sidebar.